ideas and insights provides a rich analytical framework for thinking about some of the most pressing issues of our times. Our goal is to promote a dialogue about the common good and forge a consensus on what we owe each other as fellow human beings. Engaging, enlightening, ideas and insights offers original and bold vistas for making sense of the world. Join us weekly here on this television station. I am Badrina Trao, your host for Ideas and Insights. Hello and welcome to Ideas and Insights. I am Badrina Trao, your host for this program. Of all the things that happen daily, two occurrences have momentous ramifications, yet we often ignore them. First, every day we encounter people committing ethical and legal transgressions. We see or hear about someone being bullied, ill-treated, or subject to sexual harassment in our workplace, homes, and in the community. More often than not, our instinct is to overlook these events. We acquiesce in, the, in misconduct because we do not wish to get embroiled in unedifying controversies or because we fear the consequences of our intervention. Regardless, our silence and passivity often have ruinous consequences. Recall the US gymnastics sex abuse scandal. Dr. Larry Nasser, the team doctor of the women's national gymnastics team for 18 years, reportedly sexually abused hundreds of young women before his misdeeds were exposed in 2016. Likewise, consider the sexual abuse of children by Catholic priests and the sexual harassment of countless women by media celebrities, movie moguls, and corporate honchos. Alternatively, think of garden variety malfeasance, ranging from padding one's expense account to large-scale corruption. Undergirding these egregious acts is our unwillingness to speak up. Second, Though most of us prefer to be bystanders, some go to great lengths to protest against routine ethical violations, big and small. Often, they put their lives and the safety of their loved ones on the line to expose the wrongdoers. A righteous impulse to uphold fairness and humanity drives their actions. They are moral rebels who cannot tolerate anything that affronts the canons of rectitude and probity. They bristle at illegalities and spare no effort to go after the culprits. They are the conscience of a community. Two famous examples come to mind. In 2004, during the Second Gulf War, Sergeant Joseph Darby, a former U.S. Army reservist exposed the Abu Ghraib torture and prisoner abuse scandal in Abu Ghraib, Iraq. 
but for his fearlessness, we would never know about the physical abuse, torture, rape, sodomy, and killing of Iraqi prisoners of war. Sadly, however, Sergeant Darby paid a heavy price for his boldness. Many of his friends and neighbors roundly excoriated him and shunned his company. He now lives in protective military custody in an undisclosed location. Another brave American, known for his steely conviction, is Warrant Officer Hugh Thompson, Jr. On March 16, 1968, he interceded to stop the senseless killing of unarmed Vietnamese civilians, elderly men, women, and children by American soldiers. This grim episode, known as the My Lai Massacre, after the village where it took place, resulted in the death of 500 innocent civilians. The toll would have been greater if Hugh Thompson Jr. had not landed his helicopter between the soldiers and the civilians and ordered the soldiers to stop firing. His fellow soldiers and the public ridiculed him for his intervention. Three decades later, in 1998, the Clinton administration recognized Officer Thompson's valor and awarded him the Soldier's Medal, an honor given for heroism not involving conflict with an enemy. These incidents make one wonder. Why do people respond so differently to improper and illicit acts in their daily lives? Why do most of us remain mute instead of proactively confronting our tormentors? How can some people summon the courage to do the right thing? In her latest book, Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels, published by Harvard University Press, Dr. Katherine Sanderson, eminent social psychologist, and Polar Family Professor of Psychology at Amherst College in Massachusetts, offers a thoughtful analysis of why most of us choose to remain bystanders when we witness unethical behavior in our surroundings. Dr. Sanderson points out that contrary to our intuition, people who behave badly are not monsters. They are good folks making poor choices particularly when they are in group settings. Drawing on recent research and neuroimaging studies of brain activity, she says people commit unethical acts because of a multiplicity of factors. Some are driven by situational contingencies. Others, in a lapse of intelligence, commit small mistakes that gradually escalate into major violations. Yet others, lack the skills and strategies to behave decently. Dr. Sanderson emphasizes that regardless of their genesis, these transgressions batten on the failure of good people to stand up and do the right thing. There are several reasons why we fail to act. When we are in groups, we assume Others will do something. We don't have to, a phenomenon 
psychologists refer to as diffusion of responsibility. Some remain apathetic, thinking that their efforts will hardly make a difference. Then there is the considerable cost of helping, the fear of ridicule, retaliation, and exclusion precludes some from being proactive. In several cases, people misperceive social norms and assume that there is a great deal of support for deviant conduct. The upshot is that we collectively cave in instead of calling out the wrongdoer. Dr. Sanderson's work offers a roadmap for reversing this trend. She posits, we can arouse the moral rebel dormant in us. A moral rebel, she says, is someone who has high self-esteem, empathy, and a strong sense of social responsibility. Untrammeled by social inhibitions and the urge to fit in, moral rebels are intrepid and independent. Becoming a moral rebel is not easy. It calls for unwavering commitment. Dr. Sanderson delineates 10 concrete strategies for transforming ourselves from bystanders to moral rebels. According to her, moral rebels believe in change, shift social norms, foster empathy, synergize with friends, and acquire the training necessary to counter callous and criminal conduct. A singular strength of Dr. Sanderson's work is that it offers hope and a blueprint for creating a world that does not countenance unconscionable acts. Dr. Sanderson joins me now to discuss the main themes of her book. Welcome to Ideas and Insights, Dr. Sanderson. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Let's begin with the topic of your book. What motivated you to write about bystanders and moral rebels? So about five years ago now, my husband and I dropped off our <laughs> oldest child at college for the first time. Um, Andrew's really quite independent, so we didn't hear much from him for a couple weeks. And occasionally he would text and say, you know, how do you do laundry or can I have some more money? But we really didn't hear much from him. And then about two weeks in, my phone rang one night and it was Andrew. His voice was breaking and he said, mom, a student died in my dorm last night. Mm -hmm. and, and he told me the story. And again, it's a story that even if you don't know the particulars of this case is all too familiar. A student had been drinking, he fell and hit his head. His friends watched over him for hours, but they did not call 911. And I was just racked as a mom of three, as a psychology professor for many of how differently that story could have gone if one of those kids had called 911. And that, in all honesty, was the prompt for this book. Interesting. Early in the book, Professor Sanderson, you say that when people are in groups, they behave very differently. What is it about being in a group that makes people 
behave in ways they would never perhaps behave when they are all by themselves? Yes, really great question. So what psychologists think happens is that we have a feeling of anonymity. Uh, the, we have a feeling of disinhibition. So all of a sudden, the sort of normal constraints on our behavior that might lead us to kind of act in line with our moral code or you know who we want to be, when we're in a group setting, it's very easy for us to get kind of caught up in the moment, lose sense of ourselves as an individual, and therefore behave in ways that we would never dream of doing if we were alone and really thinking through our actions. In the context of uh, group behavior, Professor Sanderson, you uh, bring in three very interesting concepts from psychology, the bystander effect, diffusion of responsibility, and social loafing. Can you tell our viewers what these ideas mean? <laughs> Yeah, really, really important um, ideas. So when we think about the group setting, a number of different thing happen, things happen. So one, we think about the bystander effect as people sitting by and letting other, assuming other people will step up. So having a sense of, doesn't have to be me. That's what we think of in terms of diffusion of responsibility. So if you're alone and you see a problem, you understand, oh, I'm the only person here who could help. I better step up. But if you're with a group of people, it's very easy to think, well, somebody else can do the work. I don't have to. And college students, high school students, many of us uh, can think about times in which we've had a group project and we <laughs> engage in something called social loafing in which we assume, well, I don't really have to take the lead on this because somebody else will step up. This, of course, happens more mundanely when we're at a restaurant and we're in a large group. People often don't really tip adequately, which is why most restaurants impose a mandatory tipping fee on groups of five or six or eight or so. Because again, restaurants and wait staff know very well that we have this tendency to not really contribute adequately. Those are all examples of social loafing, diffusion of responsibility, and of course, the bystander effect. Talking about social loafing, you say that people do not resort to social loafing when they're watched. Now, given increased levels of surveillance uh, in public and in our institutions, would you say that will uh, reduce social loafing? So it's an interesting question because I actually think the surveillance and even the presence of cell phones kinds of cuts two ways. So one, you're absolutely right. There is surveillance all the time in all different settings. So you would think, well, people should have a sense of who they are. They don't feel anonymous. But the presence of surveillance can also make us more worried about looking stupid. So what if I step up and try to help and I feel embarrassed because I've stepped up and it really isn't my place to do so or I've misread the situation. So it's really tricky to know what is the effect of a lack of anonymity because it can also make us feel more self-conscious and worried about overreacting and feeling embarrassed. Let's move now to the Stanley Milgram experiments. You have discussed the experiment and its implications for obedience and authority. Can you, for the benefit of our viewers, please tell us what this experiment is all about and how it is relevant for us now? Because this was done over 50 years ago, was it not? 
Yes, yes. This is sort of one of the classic studies that um, people might remember hearing about from their intro to psychology class. It's often referred to as the shock obedience study. Right. But this was a study that was done um, by Stanley Milgram at Yale University. And what he did was brought in people and they were ordered then to give what they believed to be shocks to an innocent person. And the question was, will people willingly obey orders to shock somebody who is you know, innocent. And of course, what that study revealed is, um, sadly, most people will that many people, in fact, continue to obey the orders of the researcher and continue to level shocks, even when the person supposedly receiving the shocks was saying, stop, you know, no, you know, I, 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 I want out. And when the shock generator was at a level of 450 volts, XXX dangerous. So <laughs> that study really told us that many people will obey orders to harm an innocent person. You make an interesting observation while discussing the uh, Milgram experiments. You say when an authority figure orders someone to hurt a person, the brain processes this instruction very differently. What do you mean? Well, so what's interesting is that when we're doing something, because we're being ordered to do so, in the brain, we're taking less responsibility. And in a sense, that makes sense. It's not my choice. I am obeying orders. And so what recent research in neuroscience really tells us is that that feels differently at a neurological level. Interesting. That is so cool. Now. Let's move to uh, the next question, and this is about uh, the continued relevance of this study. Recently, in Poland and in the United States, the Milgram experiment was repeated, and they came to the same conclusion. Now, one would think that with new technologies, greater inequality, uh, sorry, equality and empowerment, greater sense of agency, that at least now we would get different results, but that's not the case, is it? No, and, and you, you express great hope, right? Great hope and optimism that surely the results will be different now. Um, and of course, when Stanley Milgram did his study, he didn't anticipate getting the results he got. Um, and so what this study really profoundly tells us then and sadly now is that under particular conditions, many of us will willingly obey orders to shock an innocent person. Which brings me to the last question on the Milgram experiments. In the light of all that we know from this experiment, what do you think one can do to equip oneself to resist unethical and unlawful orders by authority figures? How can we insulate ourselves? Super important question. So one thing that is often overlooked in this study is the procedure. And what happened in the Milgram study was not that he brought in people and said, shock to 450 volts, XXX. Most people in that circumstance, I'm quite confident, would say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm out of here. But Milgram did something very clever. The shocks went up in 15 volt increments. So you started with just 15 volts, just 30 volts, just 45 volts. And so basically what that study is showing us is that people get themselves on a slippery slope of problematic behavior and then they can't figure out a way to extricate themselves. And so the real takeaway, I think, from that study 
is we got to be really careful because once we start down a pathway, even if it seems like a very small thing, it's actually very hard psychologically to step back. So we have to be worried about taking even a very small step in the wrong direction. Speaking about uh, the slippery slope, you mentioned in your book that in most instances, people don't generally set out to do uh, unethical acts. They do something small and it escalates gradually and becomes big. You also uh, talk about the boiling frog effect. Uh, and that I thought was very interesting. Uh, can you tell us more how this works? Why do people who start out with minor transgressions soon find themselves doing outrageous things without feeling any uh, scruples at all? Yes. So the challenge is, and this, of course, is the classic boiling frog effect, that if you pop a frog you know, into boiling water, the frog will immediately jump out. But if you put a frog in cold water and then gradually increase the temperature, supposedly you can actually boil a frog to death because the frog will not recognize the rapidly escalating temperature. And, and that's an exact mirror of what happens in all different situations in which mm -hmm. we see people agreeing to small acts that seem like no big deal. Nah, I'll just, you know, fudge this expense report. Uh, I'll just, you know, engage in a little bit of problematic <laughs> behavior. Um, maybe it's even, you know, I'll engage in a little bit of, you know, uh, flirting at the office. And then all of a sudden, it just escalates into bigger and bigger acts. And it's very hard for people to then uh, stop because they say, well, why did I do all of these things leading up to it? And they kind of get themselves caught. Aside from uh, small transgressions ballooning into something big, you also flag situational uh, factors. And you say that no one is really immune from situational contingencies that might uh, make them commit unethical acts. How does this work and what can we do about it? Well, we do like to think of ourselves as different and unique, right? No, this I would not do this. But what we know is that the power of the situation is very, very strong. And when we're in particular kinds of settings in which maybe we worry about the consequences of, st of stepping up, maybe we worry about feeling stupid, um, we look to other people and the challenges, other people's behavior can lead us astray. Because in many circumstances, everybody privately might be thinking, ooh, this is a problem or, oh, I, I'm not comfortable with this. But each individual person is looking to everybody else and everybody else kind of has a poker face of, I have no concerns. And so that's <laughs> a case in which, again, looking to other people does not give us accurate clues about what they're thinking and feeling. Talking about why people act or do not act, one thing you flag is uh, ambiguous uh, situations and emergencies. And you say that when the situation is ambiguous, people are reluctant to intervene, but in emergencies, they come right in and provide the help that someone needs. This is interesting, is it not? Why is that? Yeah, no, it's really interesting and it's almost counterintuitive. And it helps explain why 
we can all think about profound examples of people stepping up when there is a school shooting, um, when there is a bomb exploding, when there's some kind of massive crisis, we hear wonderful reports of people stepping up and helping. But the issue is if there's a school shooting, there's no ambiguity. We understand it's a gun, it's serious, it's an emergency. If a bomb explodes, we understand this is real, this is serious, we need to help. The challenge is that in many circumstances, we don't really know what we're thinking and feeling. Um, is that person unconscious and in trouble or are they just kind of sleeping or drunk? Is that a compliment or harmless flirting or is that actually like sexual misconduct or harassment? And so the problem is when things aren't very clear, when they are ambiguous, we look to other people to try to interpret what should we feel, what should we do, how should we think. But if everyone is looking to everyone else and no one wants to feel stupid for overreacting, individually, the person who's really in need of help may just not get it. You're right. Let's now go to uh, the next question, the social cost of helping others. Now, we all know that when we set out to help others, particularly in controversial matters, there could be a severe cost. I mean, we could be ridiculed, face retaliation, or at least be ostracized. Now, these are legitimate concerns, are they not? They absolutely are. And in fact, fascinating research in neuroscience now shows that the pain of being ostracized, of being rejected by your group, is actually processed in the exact same part of the brain that processes physical pain. Um, spilling hot coffee on your arm or you know, stepping on a nail or having a paper cut. And so what that tells us is that we are really hardwired to try to avoid a social pain because again, it feels in the brain exactly the same as physical pain. Talking about helping others, you say that in order to confront uh, someone, and stop them from doing something unethical or unlawful, we need cognitive and emotional energies. How can one acquire these energies, do you think? So the good news is we can, and I think there are a couple different things. One, simply talking about all of the different effects that drive inaction, as we're doing right now, is actually very helpful. Because then the next time someone's in a situation, they might think to themselves, oh, I bet other people are feeling exactly the same as I am. And all of a sudden, you won't worry about looking stupid or feeling embarrassed because you'll have a new way to process their inaction. We also know that we can learn to be braver. Um, we can practice specific skills that help us speak up in different kinds of situations. And perhaps most importantly, we can try to cultivate empathy. We can try to think about the world through someone else's eyes and in and of itself, that can give us the courage to speak up in different situations. Dr. Sanderson, you say that we all are hardwired to conform to the social group that we belong to. That this is something almost preternatural. We are born with it. And when we are asked to become moral rebels, that often involves going against the group and standing apart. 
So are you suggesting that we are asking people to do something that goes against their grain? So I want to say two things. One, sometimes yes. Sometimes it does mean standing up. And you gave a bunch of really powerful examples at the beginning today of people who did go up against you know, their social group in some profound way and sometimes paid a cost for it. But here's what I actually find very encouraging. In many situations, you feel like you are standing up against the group, but when you start to do so, other people actually support you. In many cases, you just need one person speaking up and then lots of other people will say, oh, thank you for saying that, or thank you for doing that. I was feeling the exact same way. And that's one of the really important findings that in many cases, other people in our group do in fact feel exactly as we do. We just need somebody to take that first step. While discussing issues like bullying in schools, sexual assault cases in colleges, and malfeasance in office settings, you say one factor that makes these things happen is our misperception of social norms. What do you mean by that? So in many cases, we actually are in line with the social norms, but we are misperceiving what other people are thinking and feeling. So there's really interesting research that's been done showing that most college students think there is too much alcohol use on my campus, <laughs> but they think everybody else is perfectly comfortable with it. And that's an example in which you can clarify, hey, most other people wish there was less drinking. That's an example of social norm misperception. And conveying an accurate norm can actually lead to lower levels of drinking on campus. You discuss a number of interesting, innovative experiments in different settings, schools, colleges, and the workplace to counter the bystander effect. Can you give our viewers a sense of what these innovations are and how effective they've been in getting people to act ethically. Yes, uh, really one of the most profound examples, I think, of diffusing the bystander effect has been done with bullying in schools. We've all heard about the problem of bullying in schools, and there are lots of programs now that have used research in psychology to try to decrease rates of bullying. Some of these do something as simple as telling students, hey, most other students at your school don't like bullies. They wish there was less bullying. So that's an example, again, of diffusing social norms. In other schools, and a lot of these programs have been validated in different states, in different schools, sometimes even in different countries, they've actually developed programs in which you create a new norm within a school, a norm of kindness, a norm of empathy, and you can actually shift a school culture to be more positive. So to me, some of the most profoundly important programs are really being done to stop bullying in elementary schools, middle schools, and even high schools. All right, let's move on now to the concept of the moral rebel. You have spoken at length about who a moral rebel is, and you have enumerated the characteristics of a moral rebel. You say that a moral rebel is someone who has a great deal of confidence, self-esteem, or she is altruistic, independent, and so on and so forth. All of these things are fine, and your point is well taken. 
But is it also not true that who we ultimately become to a large extent is also a function of our socialization? My question then is, how can people overcome their upbringing and morph into moral rebels if their background was something that did not emphasize empathy, you know, fearlessness, and so on and so forth. Yes, that's a, that's a really important point. So I think one thing that we can all do, and this is something that even if you don't have a natural tendency towards, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. So we can actually cultivate a trait of empathy. So when we see somebody who's in need in, in some way, can we put ourselves in their shoes? Or maybe not ourselves, but our child. When my son called me about the incident in which a student had died in his dorm, I just kept thinking if it was my son, I would really, really want somebody to have called 911 immediately. So one thing that we can all do is engage in perspective taking. How about if it was my spouse, my friend, my daughter in a meeting in which somebody said something offensive, you know, racist or sexist, or homophobic. And putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes is something that we can practice and get better at feeling and cultivating this sense of empathy with practice. While talking about moral rebels, you make a very important point. You say that among college students, we notice that their empathy is diminishing and correspondingly narcissism is increasing a great deal. So is it fair to assume that we will have fewer moral rebels in the future? I hope not. No, and I will tell you that is one of the findings that really scares me. And I will also say that I think one of the challenges that today's college students and even high school students are facing is the prevalence of social media in which many people worry about feeling stupid and that going viral or doing or saying the wrong thing. And all of that can lead to inhibition in which people who normally might be willing to step up might be less comfortable in doing so. So I actually share your fear and concern about that finding as well. So you're telling me that it's a distinct possibility. I was hoping you would you would say I'm totally wrong. <laughs> so um, yeah, I wish I wish I could say you were totally wrong. I think it's a distinct possibility, and I actually think that makes our conversation right now and my book all that much more important because I think it really means that we have to be conscious of the forces that can be inhibiting people from acting, so we can develop specific skills and strategies to overcome what may be a natural tendency. One other thing you. Uh discuss in the context of uh, fitting in and uh, social conformity, which uh, to me was very striking was, you say that uh, one's desire to fit in, one's desire to conform is a function of variations in their brain structure. So are you suggesting that fitting in or becoming a moral rebel, that this is a function of how we are physiologically set up, that there are limits that we are born with and cannot transcend? So I wanna be careful in terms of how I interpret it because the reality is the research in neuroscience is telling us that there are in fact people who, are, who care more or less about fitting in, 
We know that adolescents care a lot about fitting in based on neuroscience research, but we do know that in general, people vary in how much they want to fit in. However, what we don't know from the research in neuroscience is whether we're born with it or whether in fact we can develop and change different parts of the brain. There's really interesting research now being done looking at the power of meditation and the act of meditating appears to actually change the structure and level of activity in the brain. So that finding actually suggests that even if some people have a predisposition in a certain direction, we may be able to take steps to actually change that predisposition and help more people step up and become their inner moral rebels. Let me now ask you about your strategies for enhancing ethical behavior in work settings. You have outlined several strategies for ensuring that people in a workplace all uniformly subscribe to common ethical standards, and you say, for example, even something as simple as getting them to sign that a pledge that they will not be unethical, particularly something that you do with your students, that it has a great impact. Again, I want to find out from you, at a time when the labor market is in a state of flux, when we have the gig economy, the platform economy, where people are working crazy hours, don't know day from night, it's quite challenging to reflect on the larger ethical questions of life. Most people these days do not have the bandwidth to do so. Would you agree? Yes, and the other thing that is, that is actually really interesting in terms of the times that we are living in right now is that many people are working remotely. We're obviously you know, doing this interview remotely. And I wonder to what extent people not working in a physical space together might lead people to sort of feel less responsibility, right? Earlier, we talked about diffusion of responsibility and social loafing. And we know from research in psychology that it's harder to do that if you care about the group and you feel connected. So I actually am thinking right now that a really interesting topic for future research would be, are people more inclined to behave less ethically when they're not physically in a workspace with other people? And that's a really interesting question. And we still have no definitive answers to that question, do we? No, and, and of course, you know, the events of just about two years ago now to right now would really suggest that sort of if we could look at has ethical behavior changed? Do people feel less committed to their employer or their workplace? Because again, we're not coming into a regular office. And again, it becomes easier to sort of think about the slippery slope when people are not physically in the office. I read um, an article a few months ago about a person who I believe was actually a high school principal who continued working at one job remotely and then took on another identical job as an assistant principal in a different school district and was simultaneously doing two jobs, which of course is not ethical um, and in line with what his wishes were for either of his employers. So that is really an interesting and topical question about the slippery slope of ethical behavior in a remote environment. Let's now talk about the concrete strategies you suggest for becoming a moral rebel. You identify several things that we could do on a personal level, like develop empathy, acquire social skills, 
foster a, a, a sense of social responsibility, become friends with others who also have similar concerns, and so on. All of these, to me, uh, seem doable. However, there are two things that stand out, and I wonder what you think about them. What I have in mind are two points you make. The first one is you say change social norms, and you also suggest that we should change social culture. Now, again, these points are well taken. However, just as a moment ago we discussed individual constraints to what we can do, surely you will agree that there are institutional constraints that preclude us from doing things that we consider important. Thus, for example, I work in a, a university which is big. I'm not in a position to change social norms or change the social culture. What would you suggest to uh, people who have this concern? So what I think is actually so exciting are all of the different things that we can think of have really changed. And, and some of them changed gradually, some of them changed all at once. So in all honesty, um, if you had done this interview with me two years ago and you had said, uh, Catherine, why don't you wear a mask when you teach? I would have said, are you kidding me? I'm, I'm not gonna wear a mask while I teach. And now I wear a mask every day while I teach. That's what I do. Um, if you had told me before I got on an airplane I needed to wear a mask, I would have said you were crazy. I would never wear a mask on an airplane. Social norms can change very, very quickly. Mask wearing norms we see are different all across the country. So in my school, I wear a mask. That may not be true in your school, but in different parts of the world, there are different norms about how we're managing COVID. And we can think about so many different examples of how social norms have changed. Um, maybe this is gonna date myself, um, but I remember as a child, when you flew on an airplane, you would buy a ticket to sit in the smoking or the non-smoking section. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. <laughs> and, and now there are people listening to this, younger people who are saying, what, what are they talking about? But those are examples of ways in which norms have changed substantially. And so I actually take a lot of hope for the power of norms to change. Doesn't mean that you or I individually can do it, but it means that there can be a groundswell of support and all of a sudden norms shift like that very quickly. This is very uh, heartwarming and optimistic. However, let me conclude this ex uh, interview with one large question. You know we are living in tempestuous times. New technologies have change the logic of our lives, growing inequality and precarity have uh, forced people to live lives of immiseration and anxiety. Likewise, there are a lot of social upheavals that people have to grapple with. It's very hard, for example, to be a youngster now in this social media age. What do you think, realistically, are the chances that people will take this message seriously and want to become moral rebels? Can they be moral rebels in this day and age? So every single time that I talk about this topic, somebody says to me something like, I remember. And then they tell me about an example of regret. They tell me, you know, sometimes it's decades ago. I was on a school bus and I saw something and I didn't step up. I was in a locker room and I wish I had. I was in a restaurant and I saw 
The reality is that all of us can think about times in which we've seen or heard something problematic and we failed to step up. And we failed to step up because in that moment, we did not know what to do. And sometimes two or three days later, we're in the shower and all of a sudden we're like, oh, that's what I should have said. That's what I should have done. So here's the thing. I wrote this book and we're having this conversation right now so people can think ahead of time. What can I do that feels safe, that feels okay to me if I see or hear something problematic? And just thinking through those steps on your own can lead people to know what to do in the moment and small steps can make a big difference. So from what you say, Dr. Sanderson, I get the impression that you want people to look at their own lives first and see how they can in their own spheres through small acts of everyday life become moral rebels. And that you are suggesting is going to morph into something bigger and will become the new social norm. Thank you very much, Dr. Sanderson. You have given us very many insights to think about. I appreciate your time. And incidentally, you are the first guest we have who has been very crisp with their answer. So I'm extremely grateful to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about such an important topic. That's it for this episode of Ideas and Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Next week, we will discuss the writings of Dr. Donna Hicks, an authority on dignity studies and an international expert on conflict resolution. Dr. Hicks is the author of two acclaimed books published by Yale University Press, Dignity, Its Essential Role in Resolving Conflicts and Leading with Dignity, how to craft a culture that brings out the best in people. Dr. Hicks blends insights from her work in conflict-torn regions like the Middle East, Northern Ireland, and Sri Lanka with her training in dispute resolution to underscore the role of dignity in leadership and interpersonal relationships. She proposes adopting a culture of dignity as a way of life and says that it can help us attain peace within ourselves and in our communities. Join us next week for an exciting discussion with Dr. Donna Hicks. Until then, stay safe and goodbye.